0: Welcome everyone, my name is Tim Harris, pastor at Woodburn Baptist Church, glad you're with us. Franklin Campus, glad you are with us. Thank you for uh, being a part of our congregation, part of our worship. Uh, Perry, Oklahoma, Uh, Pastor Brian, we love you guys. Thank you so much for being a part of our worship service. Uh, Michaela in Maryland, Mary in Germany, Uh, you also are a part of this service. Our college students uh, picking up this service on the podcast. We love you, we miss you. Uh, God bless all of you. Open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 32. Exodus chapter 32. It's the story of the golden calf. Uh, Again, I've been sort of in Exodus, but it's not a real series. And this is the end of it today. I start a new message series next week entitled H20. Really excited about taking us through the gospel of John together. Uh, But I want to bring us to this point in the book of Exodus. Story of the Golden Calf, it's, it's a very, very familiar story. I would say nearly everybody in our culture, people who know anything about the Bible at all, probably have heard this story. It, it's, it's in the Ten Commandments movie. It's, it's one of those familiar Bible stories, but it's hardly ever preached from a pulpit. I've never really preached this passage in 15 years from the pulpit. I've taught it uh, in other settings, uh, but but never preached it in this way. There's usually a reason for that. If there's a passage that preachers steer clear of, it's usually because there's something weird or or difficult about it. And, And there is weirdness in this passage, and I'm just warning you for it. Uh, But I'm just dumb enough to try to go right ahead and preach it, Uh, and that's what we're going to try to do. It's not the golden calf part. That part is clear enough, and we'll talk about how that applies to our own lives. It's the part about what happens next. It's what Moses does. Do you know what happens to the golden calf at the end of this story? I didn't think so. You're about to find out they drink it. Yeah, it gets that weird. And then Moses flips out and kills 3,000 people. We're going to read the whole story. We're going to read it. If there are parts of Scripture that you don't read, then there are truths that you never hear. And so I think it's important that we take God's word as it is and see how it will speak to us. So Exodus chapter 32. Remember a few things. Pay close attention to the last verse in chapter 31. It's talking about the tablets of the law. And it makes a very clear point of saying that these tablets were inscribed with the terms of the covenant. It's an agreement between God and his people. It's an agreement. And that, that agreement, those tablets were written by, what's it say? The finger of God. It's going to emphasize that these tablets are written by God's own finger, and that's going to be important for what happens to them. This is a dreadful story in, in the lives of God's people, and because of our tendency to repeat it, this is often a, a dreadful story that we ourselves live as well. It's a story of turning away from God. In my life as a pastor, I run across a lot of people who say they're disappointed with God, that God doesn't hold up his end somehow in their lives this is a story that reminds us of God's disappointment in us how we never hold up our end of things as well Exodus chapter 32 this is the word of the Lord listen to what the word of God says to you when the people saw how long it was taking Moses to come back down the mountain how long was it taking do you know 40 days. He was up there 40 days. When the people saw how long it was taking Moses to come back down the mountain, they gathered around Aaron. Come on, they said. Make us some gods who can lead us. Let that sink in. Make us some gods who can lead us. We don't know what happened to this fellow Moses. Notice that. We don't know what happened to what's his name. What's his name, Moses, who brought us here from the land of Egypt. We don't know what happened to him. So Aaron said... Take the gold rings from the ears of your wives and sons. That, that, that's just kind of funny me. Their sons had ear, earrings. Take the gold earrings from your wives and sons and daughters and bring them to me. All the people took the gold rings from their ears and brought them to Aaron. Then Aaron took the gold, melted it down and molded it into the shape of a calf. Okay, pay attention to that. Moses takes the gold, melts it down, and molds it. He takes great care like an artist in in shaping this calf. When the people saw it, they exclaimed, Oh, Israel, these are the gods who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Aaron saw how excited the people were, so he built an altar in front of the calf. Then he announced, Tomorrow will be a festival to... The Lord, amazing. People got up early the next morning to sacrifice burnt offerings and peace offerings. After this, they celebrated with feasting and drinking, and they indulged in pagan revelry. They had an orgy in front of the calf. The Lord told Moses, quick, go down the mountain. Your people, what's interesting there, what's interesting Your people, yeah, God calls them not my people, your people. Your people whom you brought from the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. How quickly they have turned away from the way I commanded them to live. They have melted down gold and made a calf and they have bowed down and sacrificed to it. They are saying, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Then the Lord said, I have seen how stubborn and rebellious these people are. Now leave me alone so my fierce anger can blaze against them and I will destroy them. Then I will make you, Moses, into a great nation. Where have you heard those words before? I will make you into a great nation. Abraham, exactly. God at this point is considering completely erasing everything to do to this point. Everything of salvation history that started with Abraham, God wants to just throw it away and start again with Moses. I'll make you into a great nation. But Moses tried to pacify the Lord as God. Oh Lord, he said, why are you so angry with your own people whom you brought from the land of Egypt with such great power and, and such a strong hand? Why let the Egyptians say their God rescued them with the evil intention of slaughtering them in the mountains and wiping them from the face of the earth? Turn away from your fierce anger. Change your mind about this terrible disaster you have threatened against your people. Remember your servants Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You bound yourself with an oath to them saying, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars of heaven. And I will give them all of this land that I have promised to your descendants. And they will possess it forever. So the Lord changed his mind about the terrible disaster he had threatened to bring on his people. Then Moses turned and went down the mountain. He held in his hands the two stone tablets inscribed with the terms of the covenant. They were inscribed on both sides, front and back. These tablets were God's work. The words on them were written by God himself. It's emphasizing that. Pay attention. When Joshua heard, I'm sorry, I turned too many pages. Tablets written by God himself. When Joshua heard the boisterous noise of the people shouting below them, he exclaimed to Moses, it sounds like war in the camp. But Moses replied, no, it's not a shout of victory nor the wailing of defeat. I hear the sound of a celebration. When they came near the camp, Moses saw the calf and the dancing, and he burned with anger. He threw the stone tablets to the ground, smashing them at the foot of the mountain, He took the calf they had made and burned it. Then he ground it into powder, threw it into the water, and forced the people to drink it. Finally, he turned to Aaron and demanded, What did these people do to you to make you bring such terrible sin upon them? Don't get so upset, my lord, Aaron replied. You yourself know how evil these people are. They said to me, make us gods who will lead us. We don't know what happened to this fellow Moses who brought us here from the land of Egypt. So I told him, whoever has gold jewelry, take it off. When they brought it to me, I simply threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. (laughs) Moses saw that Aaron had let the people get completely out of control, much to the amusement of their enemies. So he stood at the entrance to the camp and shouted, All of you who are on the Lord's side... Come here and join me. And all the Levites gathered around him. Moses told them, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. Each of you take your swords and go back and forth from one end of the camp to the other. Kill everyone, even your brothers, friends, and neighbors. The Levites obeyed Moses' command and about 3,000 people died that day. Then Moses told the Levites, today you have ordained yourselves for the service of the Lord, for you obeyed him, even though it meant killing your own sons and brothers. Today you've earned a blessing. Next day Moses said to the people, you have committed a terrible sin, but I will go back up to the Lord on the mountain, perhaps I'll be able to obtain forgiveness for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, oh, what a terrible sin these people have committed. They have made gods of gold for themselves, but... But now, if you will only forgive their sin, but if not, erase my name from the record you have written. The Lord said to Moses, no, I will erase the name of everyone who has sinned against me. Now go, lead the people to the place I told you about. Look, my angel will lead the way before you. And when I come to call the people to account, I will certainly hold them responsible for their sins. Then the Lord sent a great plague upon the people because they had worshipped the calf Aaron had made. Take your seats. That's a rough story. That's a rough story. How does it happen? We've been reading through Exodus together, and and you've read these stories before. Do, Do you remember how after they crossed the Red Sea, the people danced and they praised God? They had seen this incredible display of God's power. He parted the seas for them. They walked across on dry land, and on the other side of that, they worshiped the Lord, that they worshiped God who had brought them through the sea. Do you remember that? Do you remember how Miriam was the one who grabbed her tambourine and sang songs to God and led everyone in this great dancing and praising of God? Do you remember how Miriam did that? Because, Because this is what Miriam does next. She's, she's dancing around the calf. This is what you got to understand. This is a, a universal rebellion against God. It, it, it is unanimous. All the people together, they participate in this, all of them. Do you remember the elders in a story I preached a while back, how the elders... Got to go up on the mountain with Moses there and at the time of the covenant ratification when they made the sacrifice and they literally splattered the blood on all of the people. And the elders went up the mountain and they sat there at the very feet of God and shared a meal in his presence. Do you remember that? Because this is what all of those elders did 40 days later. Those same elders who who saw God and and worshiped at his feet. In in 40 days, they're dancing naked before a golden calf. It's really difficult to understand how people can be so fickle. How how an entire, uh, entire nation of people can all turn together. It's very difficult to understand. But it's exactly what happens. Every single one of them, and the scripture emphasizes that, the, the, the unanimity of it, that they're unanimous in, in this, and they don't even have to talk about it. That's the strange part about it. It's just, it's just something in all of their hearts just turns, and it turns against God. And every one of them together, they participate in this. It, it's very difficult to understand. It's difficult to understand unless you get really, really honest about your own self and maybe even our own church because honestly, this is how people are. I can't explain people, even though I've been a people for my whole life, I can't explain why we are this way. I really can't explain how an entire nation of people that have seen so much of God's power and so much of God's grace, I can't explain how they can just wholesale turn away from Him, except that I see it all the time. I think it happens for these people, and I think it happens for us, because we have very short memories Go back to chapter 24, just a few pages. Chapter 24, verse 7. These are the last words they spoke. Before they say, we don't know what happened to what's-his-name Moses, and, and we're looking for somebody to make us some gods now. Before they said that, this is the last thing that they said. Exodus 24, verse 7. What did they say? We will do everything the Lord has commanded. We will obey. That's the last thing they said. That's what they said right before they opened their mouths the next time when they say, make us some gods. I don't understand it other than simply to say they have very, very short memories. Very short memories. Apparently, Miriam has forgotten that her tambourine used to be used exclusively for worshiping and praising God. Today it can be used to dance naked before a golden calf and call that calf her god. How can she do that? The elders who feasted in the very presence of God, today they can can feast before a golden calf and somehow they don't even notice the contradiction. It's a very, very short memory. It would be crazy except that we all are afflicted with the very same short memory. I don't know what you've experienced with the Lord. I don't know about your private times with the Lord, but, but I'm willing to bet that you've had moments in your life when, in conversation with God, you made promises to Him. Maybe it was a Wednesday night or a Thursday night at camp when you made a very important commitment to God. You made promises to God. Sometimes, as a pastor, I get to hear those promises. The man who thinks he's dying, dying of a heart attack, who says, God, if you just let me live, I'll preach, I'll preach. Well, he's alive, but he ain't preaching. Do you understand how that works? It's the same way in in, in your life. You've made promises to God before. At some point in your life, most of you made a, a, a total commitment of your heart to Christ. You made a promise to to live for him and to walk with him and to obey him. You said the very same thing that the people of Israel said back in chapter 24. You made a promise to live for God and to live for God alone. Now what happened to that promise? We have very, very short memories. People of Israel had seen all that God could do. You've seen a lot of what God can do. You know what God has done in your own life, but you have a very short memory for that. You forget to give thanks. You forget to return to God. You just forget God. It's a very short memory, but it is a tragic affliction. Because when you forget God, when you forget your promises to God, when you forget His power, when you forget His grace, when you forget Him, then you have a habit of turning from Him. And that turning always ends badly. Do you understand? It's a short memory. I think that's part of it. I think it's also the, the way we as human beings have this herd mentality, that this group think. I can't explain it. Let the psychologist among us explain it to us. I just know that, that we're strangely tuned into one another. We can operate sometimes as a group, and we don't even have to plan or, or actually voice any direction. We'll just sort of tune into each other and watch each other, and we'll follow one another. We do it all the time. We do it all the the time. That's why if you walk into any given high school in the United States, most all the kids are dressed the same, they're doing the same things, they're talking the same, and they all think they're so different. But the fact is, we're very tuned to one another. We like to think the same, and we tend to follow the herd, like animals, like fish in the ocean, we just continue to follow the herd, wherever the herd goes, and it's strange because if we don't think, without thinking, that is our natural instinct just to do what everybody else does, just to follow them wherever they go, however they think. We just think the same because truly we're not thinking. We're not thinking. It takes a person who's willing to think, to think for herself, to think his own thoughts. To try to stay in touch with God, it takes a person who thinks and it takes a person of courage actually to not follow the herd. But what you see in Exodus chapter 32 is an entire nation of people who just follow the herd right to the altar of the golden calf. Nobody seems to stop and think for himself. Nobody ever seems to have the courage to say, stop, wait, this is wrong. Nobody says a word. They just follow one another all the way to the golden calf. You'll do the same thing. Some of you are doing the same thing right now. You call yourself a Christian. You say that you belong to God, but there is absolutely zero difference zero difference between the life you're living and the life that the world lives there's zero difference in the way you think and the way the world thinks and if you are one of those Christians for whom there's zero difference between you and the world guess what my hunch is you don't belong to Christ you belong to the world It's a herd mentality, and you see it here as they just follow one another. They don't even have to call a meeting. It's just sort of unspoken, but they know how to do this. They just follow one another as they all turn away from God. They have short memories. It's a herd mentality. And and I think just like us, they give up too quickly. They give up too easily. And I pointed out to you the exact amount of time that Moses has been on the mountain. What does the Bible say? How long has he been up there? Forty days. Forty days. That's interesting because the number 40 in Scripture usually has a kind of significance. It's only associated with certain things. What else in the Bible happens for 40 days? Noah went into the ark and it rained for? Forty days. Yeah, Jesus was in the wilderness for? 40 days as he was fasting, 40 is typically the number for for testing, the the number for for some sort of trial. So truly, as Moses goes up into the mountain, he disappears into that cloud, and that mountain continues to smolder and, and quake, but he never comes back. 40 days is a pretty long time to wait for somebody. It's a pretty long time to wait to see what happens next. And they've been waiting for 40 days, and finally they just give up. They just give up, and there's a certain logic to it. They watched Moses walk up that mountain as that mountain was shaking and quaking. They watched him disappear into that cloud as that cloud blew and and swelled and began to turn to fire. They watched Moses disappear into a cloud of fire and never come back. So, what are they assuming? He's gone. He's gone. Moses is gone. That fellow Moses who brought us to who, whatever his name was, he's gone. He's gone now, completely gone. And they're assuming that if Moses is gone, who else must be gone to? God. Yeah. Moses is gone and he took God with him. Moses and God are, are not coming back. And so we need God, we need a leader, we need some gods, and that's exactly what they ask for. They, they, they give up a little bit too quickly, they, they should have waited a little bit longer, but we're the same way. When life seems to drag out, when we feel abandoned, we tend to do foolish things, and they do a foolish thing. You see, they're accustomed to having Moses lead them, and they're accustomed to having God going before Moses. And now they say, if we're ever going to get out of this wilderness, if we're ever going to move forward, we've got to have a leader. We've got to have a God. So Aaron, he's the second in command, Aaron, make us some gods. Make us some gods. I don't even understand how you can think like that. Make us some God. It is very, very difficult to have faith in a God that you can't see. It's very difficult to have faith when you truly don't understand what God is doing or understand his ways. It's difficult to have faith when you feel like God has gone off and left you. And so the people have this incredible collapse of faith. They're, they're ready for a God that they can see. Do you understand the, the, the convenience of that? that? They want a God truly that they can see. A God that they can somehow put on a cart or, or, or put inside a tent. A God that they can keep up with. there's a convenience to this there's a logic in this that's very difficult to argue with they want a God finally a a God that that, that they can control a God that's not going to disappear somewhere a God that's not going to run off ahead of them they want to make their own God so therefore that God will always be predictable is never going to somehow run away from them they just decide to make some God's Now understand who these people are. These are people who know God. These are people who've seen God's power. Truly they know that God is not a God that you can contain inside a statue of any kind. Truly they know that that calf is not God. They're not crazy. That They're not somehow foolish in that way. It's not that they believe that that calf is God. They just decide to make an image and call it God. You see, they make this calf that they can control, but then they call it God. They just mix it all up. Do you see how they do that? They make a golden calf. They just name it Yahweh. They name it Jehovah. They name it God. It's not God. But they just begin to put it all together. It's a way of helping it make sense for them. It's really the same thing that we always do. Go back to the book of Romans chapter 1. Great place in Scripture where Paul talks about what it means to be an idolater, what it means to follow a false god. And this is what Paul says, and it's important. We typically think that the only people who would worship an idol are are, are natives somewhere out in the bush, it's like one of those episodes of Gilligan's Island where the headhunters come over in a canoe and they fall down in front of Gileana. Do you understand? It's one of those strange things. We associate idol worship with, with, with uneducated, unsophisticated people. But the scripture makes clear that, that idolatry is much more common among people like people like you and me. Notice what he says. Romans chapter 1, verse 21. They knew God. Okay? They knew God, but they wouldn't worship him as God or even give him thanks. And they began to think up foolish ideas of what God was like. As a result, their minds became dark and confused. Claiming to be wise, they instead became utter fools. And instead of worshiping the glorious, ever-living God, they worshiped idols made to look like mere people and birds and animals and reptiles. This is how idolatry happens. This is how people turn to idols. And Paul's not talking about headhunters somewhere off of Gilligan's Island, you understand? He's talking about people like me and you. And it's not that we don't know God, we do know God. And that's the point that Paul makes. We do know God. It's just this unwillingness in our own hearts to worship him. It's an unwillingness on our part to acknowledge that he is God. Even though we know God and we understand something about him, there's something about us that turns from him. And whenever we turn away from the true and living God, we will inevitably try to set something else up in his place. I know that some of you don't like to think of yourself in this way, but you are a worshiper. You were born, created to worship God. And if you choose or if you refuse to worship the one true God, you're going to put something else in his place. Your heart cannot endure the vacuum. That's why when Moses disappears and they assume God's not coming back, the people say, we've got to have gods. We've got to have something. And you're the very same way. You may refuse to acknowledge that God is God, but you will inevitably put something back up in his place. Don't forget that the word worship actually comes from an old English word that is truly worth worship, And to worship simply means to, to ascribe worth to something, to ascribe worth to somebody. So worship is to ascribe ultimate worth to something. We were created in our lives to, to ascribe ultimate worth to God. That means in our lives we are to set aside God as the most important. God is the most precious thing in my heart, in your heart. This is what it means to be a worshiper. But if you will not set God in that place of ultimate worth, that place of ultimate importance, you will inevitably make something else ultimately worthy. But it's not. And that's the horrible part of it. You're going to make something very, very important in your life, but it's going to be something that doesn't deserve that place. That's why for some of you right now, popularity, having friends, is the most important thing in your life. It's why some of you know exactly how many friends you have on Facebook. And it's why some of you, when your friends on Facebook stop talking to you, you go in there really pitiful and pathetic and say, somebody text me quick. Somebody text me. I'm bored. Text me. Ring me. Hit the cell. Do you understand? The desperation because you've sort of made popularity. you sort of made having a lot of friends The ultimate thing in your life, it's the only thing that matters. Our culture does this. Our culture makes things that are unimportant and sets them up in a place of ultimate importance. In our culture, we worship bodies. We worship sexuality, but but simply we worship bodies. We worship the human body. You can't drive down the interstate anymore without seeing pictures. Most of it would have been pornographic 30 years ago. You're going to see pictures of bodies. And it doesn't even matter what they're selling. They could be selling chewing tobacco, but they'll sell it with a woman nearly naked who's not chewing tobacco. Do you understand? We push everything in, in terms of Bodies, and some of us buy into that. Having a perfect or having an attractive body, having a bikini-ready body is really the ultimate thing for some people. Obviously not some of you, but some people. <laughs> to understand, in, in our culture, that, that, that body becomes so important. Or money, or nearly anything else that you can name. Whenever we take something... That is not ultimately important and we make it the ultimate in our lives. We have just set up an idol. So how do you find the idols in your life? How do you know if you've done that? Well, real simply, as I've said earlier, just look around you. If you're trying to figure out if there are idols in your life, just stop and ask yourself, well, what are the idols in the lives of people around me? Because we tend to borrow the false gods from our neighbors, In this story for for Israel, understand, they didn't worship golden calves in Egypt. They they just didn't. They did not worship golden calves in Egypt, but they worshiped golden calves all through there in in the Canaanite region, in the promised land they're heading toward. This is what the neighbors are doing. All the neighbors have gods that they can worship that are made of gold, and and they're set up on an an altar, and and we want to be like everybody else, You're. Your tendency to borrow idols from your neighbors is a very, very strong tendency. That's probably why so many of us live more like the world than like Christ. We truly worship the false gods of of our culture. The other way to find the idol in your life, to, to, to find the false gods that you worship, is to sort of look for that thing in your life that you surround with a lot of excuses you see, deep down, you know that you've made something very, very precious that's really not that valuable. And so you sort of have to rationalize that behavior. Aaron is, is a pretty good example of this. Go back to, to his story. When Moses says, Aaron, what have you done? Now, Aaron knows that he's done something completely inexcusable. He's done something completely foolish, Aaron is Moses' brother. Don't forget that. And God didn't want Moses to bring Aaron along. I'm sure Moses is remembering that now. It wasn't God's plan that Aaron even come along on this trip. But here Aaron is. And when Aaron is left in charge, the people come and say, make us gods. And so Aaron simply follows the crowd like everybody else. He follows the herd. What does he say? Now, the scripture tells us the story how how Aaron said, Everybody, bring me your earrings and your nose rings and your toe rings and your belly button rings. Bring me all your rings, all your gold. And this group of half a million people bring all of their gold. Aaron gathers the gold. The scripture says he melts it. Scripture says he, he, he forms it, he fashions it like an artist, and then he sets it up on an altar. And plans a full day of vacation and worship the next day. Aaron put a lot into this. But when Moses says, Aaron, what have you done? What does Aaron say? Well, you know how evil these people are. Notice that. It's the people. You know how evil these people are. And and well, I just said, bring me your jewelry. And they brought me some jewelry. And I threw it in the fire. And now popped this calf. Really? Really? You put the jury in that fire and out popped a calf? Huh. You ever heard people talk like that? Because I have. And it's a pretty good way to find the false idols in their lives. Whatever it is that they have to rationalize, whatever it is that they just bend logic to explain, whatever it is that they have to continue to prop up on this altar of excuses. You ever heard people talk like that? Because I have. I have. You ever heard the girl say, well, my boyfriend asked me to prom, and I put on this dress, and now I'm pregnant. Oh, really? The dress did that? See, that, that's how people talk. I was sitting at the computer and pornography just started coming up. Pornography. I sat there for five hours with pornography coming up. I must have been spammed. Oh, really? You're just sitting there and pornography's just coming up? I walked into the bank with this pantyhose on my head and they just started giving me money. They just giving me money. Really? The pantyhose did that? Oh, it, This can't be adultery because I sort of feel like God has brought him into my life. Oh, really? Oh, really? Wouldn't God want me to be happy? Oh, friend, are you listening to yourself? Because whenever you begin to talk like that, whenever you begin to call wrong right, whenever you begin to worship at the altar of a false god and you begin to call that god, whenever you begin to act like you're pleasing God, when truly you're only pleasing yourself, when you begin to have to explain to everybody who knows you and loves you, when you begin to have to make up more and more excuses for what you're doing, you understand you have probably turned away from the living God and now you're worshiping something else. It will destroy you. It will destroy you. And that's where the story gets really rough. I guess the reason that preachers have often avoided this story is because of the things that Moses does. And I can count about four things that I wish he hadn't done or four things that I can't imagine myself doing. The first is the way he literally argues with God. He literally argues with God. God is ready simply to to write his people off and he is justified in doing that. Before you say that God is some sort of fickle, capricious God, you've got to understand that God is entitled to do this. They made a covenant together, and God said, if you will be my God, if you will be my people, I will be your God. If you will walk with me, I will lead you. But the people, in very, very short time, they've already abandoned God, and not just slightly, they have abandoned him in the the most shameful way. They're dancing naked before a golden calf and saying that that calf is God himself. God is entitled to judge his people. He offered them his grace. He offered them freedom. He offered them deliverance, and they have turned away from him. This is part of the agreement. They get what's coming to them, and they've chosen it. Do you understand that? They've made their choice. God is entitled to walk away from them. He is. He told them that's what he would do. And do you not see in this story how God's wrath builds up? Do you understand that God truly is a God of wrath towards sin? He loves people, but he is fiercely opposed to sin. And the sin that is now going to destroy his people, God has, is determined to judge the sin. Do you see that? And he's entitled to do so. This isn't a God who's not just. This is a God who is just. And the people are about to get exactly what's coming to them, exactly what they're asking for, exactly what God promised them would happen. God is going to abandon his people. He said that he would. But Moses walks straight into that blazing furnace of God's wrath and says, God, no, no, don't do this. If you wonder the full value, the the, the full extent of God's grace, you need to look long and hard at this episode right here where God has has to nearly control his wrath. There's a tremendous price paid by God himself when he offers us grace. We don't deserve grace. And Moses goes before a just God and argues for grace on behalf of a people who do not deserve it. Remind you, they are still dancing naked before the calf when Moses is saying, no, no. The other thing that even in the scripture that there is a sense of horror, but because it continues to remind you these tablets are written by God's own hand. I saw in one of those shows was it an antique Road show or, or something. Somebody had a program from a concert and they had the Beatles autograph, just handwriting by, by the Beatles. And, and this program with, with John Lennon and Paul McCartney, this, this program with with the Beatles autographs was worth thousands and thousands of dollars. and the lady just leaves going, "Whoa woo. She had the autographs of the Beatles. It was, it was valuable. Moses is holding in his hands. The commandments written by God's own finger. Written by God's own finger. And what does he do with the tablets? Smash. Smash. Nobody preaches that. I have a hard time making sense of that. If something tells me that that's wrong but he's never condemned for it. The only sense I can make of that is the basic fact that in all of our lives, most of us never really understand how far we've drifted from God until something precious gets broken. Most of us are never willing to recognize how we're drifting from God until something precious gets broken. Maybe it's a relationship, your marriage. Maybe it's the life of your child Most of us never realize how how broken our lives are until something precious gets broken. He smashes the tablets and then he takes the golden calf, and and, and this is just epic weirdness. He he takes the golden calf, he he melts it in fire, he grinds it to powder, he dissolves it in water like Kool-Aid, and forces the people to drink it. That's the end of the story they drink the golden calf. What's that about? I really struggle with this one. The only thing I can come up with is not very earth-shattering, it's just kind of practical. The golden calf needs to be destroyed. That the temptation to worship this false god needs to be removed, but how do you destroy gold? Moses is in the wilderness. Gold is a a mineral. It is something that you cannot destroy. It won't burn in fire. If you put gold in fire, the only thing it does is become purer and purer. Everything in the gold that's not gold will burn, but you can't burn gold. And he's in the wilderness. How is he going to destroy the calf? What's he going to do with it? You can't just throw it in, 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 the, in the trash. You can't just put it in the recycle bin. What's he going to do with the calf? If he grinds it to powder and throws it in the water and leaves it, everybody out there is going to be panning for gold. you understand? How do you throw away a golden calf? Moses does the only thing he can do in the wilderness to make sure the calf is gone for good. He does the only thing he can do. He grinds it to powder... Drink it. That golden calf is never coming back, people. Only way to destroy it. That false idol in your life, you're not quite serious about putting it away for good, are you? You're just not quite serious yet. You're just not done with it yet, are you? You may put it in the closet. You may say that you're done for a while, but in your heart of hearts, you like to leave your options open, don't you? You, you, you've you quit drinking mostly, but you continue to keep that bottle in, in the back of the cabinet behind the spices. Your wife will never find it, and you're just telling yourself that, you know, it's there just in case. You continue to leave your options open, but Moses does not leave the option open for these people. They will never come back to this calf again. It will never be remade. It will be never, never be refashioned. That calf is gone forever. The idols in your life, you need to put them away forever. Ever. Because this is a life and death thing. That's the last thing that Moses does, and it's probably, again, one of the reasons preachers don't preach this. Moses flips out and kills thousands of people. 3,000 people are killed at the end of this story. Now, again, we're talking about a population of, of a half a million to a million. So, so it's, not, it's not that many people in, in the largest scope of the nation, Israel. But, but why? Why 3,000 people? people. The Levites are gathered and the Levites are told to go through the nation with their swords and they're killing their neighbors. They're killing their own sons, their their, their own friends. They're killing people that they know and they kill 3,000 people. How do we make sense of that? Well, it's like this. Moses stood at the gate of the camp and he shouted, what? Who is on the Lord's side? He shouted, "Who is on the Lord's side?" And the people separated themselves. Did you see that? They separated themselves. So the 3,000 people who died that day, they choose their fate. They choose their fate. They are given the opportunity to step across a line called commitment. They're given that opportunity to either worship God, the true God, or continue to chase after that golden calf. They're given that choice. Who is on the Lord's side, Moses says, and they make their choice and they die in the wilderness. If you don't read certain parts of Scripture, there are certain truths you never hear, and maybe this is a truth that you need to hear. At some moment in your life, you've got to step across that line called commitment. At some moment in your life, you've got to acknowledge that God is God, and you've got to set him up on the altar of your life. You've got to make God the only thing of ultimate importance in your life. He's got to be most important, most precious. Every decision you make, everything you do, you've got to go back and ask yourself, is this what God would want from me? You've got to surrender yourself to him. At some point in your life, you've got to make a decision. And it needs to be a final sort of decision. You've got to understand that either you're going to follow God and He will lead you into life. Or you will follow after all of these false idols in your life. And you will die in the wilderness of your life. Do you understand that? You will die following these false gods. Following after money. Following after sexuality. Following after popularity. Whatever it is you try to make God in the place of God. Don't you understand? These things can never give you life. They will only ensure that you die following them. End of this story. Thousands of people die. Why do they die? Because they choose it. They choose death rather than life. It's the same choice we're putting before you today. It's the same line drawn. Who's on the Lord's side? you need to be willing to step across that line. It will not matter what your friends say or do. It will not matter what others think of you. If you're going to find the life that Christ has for you, if you're going to get to the promised land that he's leading you toward, at some point you're going to have to step across that line called commitment. So I ask you, who is on the Lord's side? Who is on the Lord's side? Pray with me. God, I know that everybody in the sound of my voice knows something about you. Something, Lord, has been revealed to them in their heart of hearts, Lord. They they may deny it. They may make up excuses for walking away, Lord. But the scripture makes clear, everybody knows you. Everybody's seen something of you. Everybody knows enough to be responsible for their choice. The choice is clear. Lord, you're asking everybody in the planet, everybody who takes the breath of life, everybody must at some point find that line called commitment and step across it. Lord, the question still continues to be shouted, Lord, at every gate. Shouted, Lord, in the hearing of every person, who is going to be on your side? Who is going to be on the Lord's side? Lord, I pray for teenagers in this house this morning who haven't quite yet made up their minds. They, they make their mind up at, at the summer at youth camp, but then so very quickly, Lord, they're back to following the herd. Lord, it's not just the teenagers, Lord, it's, it's their parents who continue, Lord, just like children, to follow after the crowd, to seek the approval and popularity of their neighbors, Lord. Help us. Lord, there are men and women in this congregation whose lives are being destroyed because they're making something else in their life, Lord, as of ultimate importance, something that's not you, Well, They claim to be Christians, they show up at church every Sunday, but the rest of the week, Lord, they're only serving their addictions, only serving their own desires, their own selfishness. They they live for money, Lord, they live for relationships, They, they don't live for you. Help us, Lord, to understand the tragic truth that all who do not live for you, Lord, will perish, will die without you. Lord, this morning, help us to hear the question, the important question. Who's gonna be on your side? Help us, Lord, to step across that line. Whatever it takes, whatever it costs us, whatever idols we have to tear down, help us, Lord, today to step across that line called commitment. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.